Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. Can art and culture become tools for revitalization? That's the question the West Baltimore Reimagining and Redevelopment Project seeks to answer. A grassroots project united around the shared values that culture can be the base of economic development to transform a community. We have three guests joining us today. Arch Social Community Network Director Denise Griffin-Johnson, Director of the UMBC Imaging Research Center, Lee Boot, and Dr. Gladstone Flooney Hutchinson, Associate Professor of Economics at Lafayette College. Thank all of you so much for being here and taking this time. And I want to give each of the three of you an opportunity to really introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your organizations before we jump into this project that you're working on together. So, Denise, why don't we start with you? Uh, Absolutely. So I I like to call myself a cultural organizer, a native of uh, West Baltimore. And the reason why I like the name cultural organizer, it is related to connecting with a visual artist some years ago around a space in West Baltimore that stays in the news, which is called the Highway to Nowhere. (laughs) And uh, the president has recently released a grand opportunity called Reconnecting America. Uh So meeting uh, the visual artist gave me another tool to use in organizing. And that tool allows for a much more human approach to engaging around place and stories, which I call culture, and then using the arts as a backdrop and seeing artists as part of the community, but not uh, separate from the community or distinctive members of the community. And as it relates to the Art Social Club, as a younger woman, I would go to the Art Social Club to dance and and enjoy the music. And it became an ideal place to root the practice that we developed around the story of the highway to nowhere. And I like to say that that was the first time that the community, actually the community of West Baltimore, told the story of the impact and how they felt about the erection of the uh, highway to nowhere. Mm -hmm. And so we developed a practice that we call culture works as a way of engaging and organizing around values and um, finding the place to root that work in became the Arch Social Club. And the Arch Social Club, Beautiful History, I like to interpret it as starting, coming out of the Emancipation Proclamation when Black folks were gathering to take charge of their lives and move towards their aspirations. Uh, They started many groups to support themselves, keep themselves motivated, things like that. And the Art Social Club comes out of that piece of history. Uh And uh, today it is still central to West Baltimore, still central to culture, it's still central to keeping in place the music that many African-Americans enjoy, such as jazz and blues and rhythm and blues. And I would like to also add that uh, where can you go in Baltimore City where you can see a 13-piece band dressed in 
tuxedos playing <laughs> swing music and playing jazz and having a, a vocalist and just being able to enjoy the sounds of the many instruments in lyrics is very distinctive to the Arch Social Club. And uh, the group I'm referring to is Dr. Phil Budd and his mm-hmm. orchestra. So that's a, a, a summary of, of a history that puts me in place now where I like to call myself a cultural organizer, highlighting place and highlighting values, the humanness of people and what's important to people and how people like to carry their own swag, how mm-hmm. people like to speak for themselves, how people like to understand their own journey and how people communicate those things to the public, which is a little different, I would say, from a grassroots or a community uh, way of communicating versus uh, media or or the academy. Uh-huh. It's just more natural. It's more authentic because it's just, quote, ordinary people expressing themselves and being able to have those spaces, such as the Arch Social Club, to be able to allow that engagement, that expression to happen, and then use the entire arts as a a backdrop, visual arts, performing arts. And that is how I met uh, Lee Boo. (laughs) And also how I I met Dr. Flooney Hutchison Mm -hmm. uh, through cultural organizing in place around spaces and value that I call culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Arch Social Club is so iconic in Baltimore. I want to give Lee an opportunity to talk a little bit about the UMBC Imaging Research Center. Lee, tell us more about this place. Sure. And I love to tell our story because, you know, the truth is there aren't very many media labs at universities or, you know, that the public has any representation in, mm-hmm. in the country. There's there's only a few dozen, really. And it's odd when you think about it, because as we do this podcast, uh, as this podcast represents, you know, media is is so central to the human experience. The history of our species is interwoven from day one with media. You know, human beings make marks and then they look at the marks they made and it informs their thinking. You know, it's this fabulous feedback loop. But, you know, in the U.S., and the U.S. is unique in this regard, we don't really have access to our own airways. You know, they're privately owned. And the reason there are so few media labs is we really get very nervous about, you know, public dollars or anything like that going to support building new forms of media or media in general. It's just, it makes people in the U.S. very nervous. So our lab is a rather unique place in this regard. We develop, we do research to develop new forms of media, to put together media technologies, to create new approaches to media. But we're, we're trying to develop media that serves public interests. Mm-hmm. We're looking out across the landscape of the media forms that we have. Podcasts are a great new media form. And we're asking always, you know, what do these media forms not do? How do they structure what we can and can't talk about, what we do and don't talk about? And we try to address that in various ways. So we work on things like, uh, you know, how can we develop media that allows people to come together and build consensus? 
what kind of media or visualization would allow people to look at, you know, people are talking finally about the fact that so many of our challenges as a society are systemic, right? How do you visualize a system or more to the point, how do you visualize lots of systems crashing into each other, which is basically our world when most of our media are intended to show one thing at a time or maybe a few things at a time? You know, so these are the kind of basic research questions that we take on. And we also do a lot of really fun stuff. Like uh, we have a model of Baltimore in 1815 that is a real crowd pleaser that everybody loves to look at. Great. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Flynn Hutchinson, tell me a little bit about your background and your college. Well, I should start by building on what Lee and Denise have laid out. Mm-hmm. And I probably will back, you know, reverse back into who I am because I think who I am is the least important part of this exercise. Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, you know, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> 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 right. So, so Denise talked about that she's a she sees herself as engaging in culture work and as a culture organizer, and she talked a little bit about the importance of culture and the arch social club and Dr. Phil Butts. And so I'm an economist. I'm an economic philosopher. I care about the moral consequences of economic choices or the moral consequence of how resources are allocated. What does it mean for social living? What does it mean for how people engage in terms of how society distributes these resources and what are the mechanisms that do so? So when Denise talks about culture being at the center of what I call creating communities of value, communities that people, where do you go to go experience the joy of being a member of a community? I call it the hedonic joy, the deep pleasure mm-hmm. of being associated with a community. You know, I'm interested in how do we assetize that? How do we awaken that as an asset? How do we commoditize as an asset so that the community can build its development and build its social economy around the things that it deeply values. So I'm interested in how culture can become a foundational asset in development and wealth creation. Mm-hmm. Now, what Lee talks about is so important because the essence of this, if one thinks about redlining, one thinks about slavery, one thinks about classism, one thinks about racism, one thinks about you know gender biases, All those things have at their core is a simple issue. The ability to suppress the rights of others, Mm -hmm. you know, so that we can take advantage of their value that they create without awarding them or rewarding them for their creation. So in essence, I'm a rights-based person. Now, that's Mm -hmm. a very tricky thing because what it means is that I recognize the importance of, for example, widening opportunities or equalizing opportunities or trying to make sure that we have outcomes that represent social justice. Mm -hmm. But in my world, I believe that strengthening people's rights to represent themselves, to exercise agency over their lives and their communities, over their social and their individual lives, I think is the most fundamental thing in allowing them to achieve both the 
opportunity expansion and the well-being expansion. Mm-hmm. So I focus on these rights. And so for me to do that, I then have to do what Lee talks about. That is, Lee talks about the media lab being concerned with the public good. Mm-hmm. I would argue that there is a the media lab in the way we understand it, ways of knowing. We believe that economic markets and civic markets, your democracy, depends on ways of knowing. People must be able to make informed decisions so that they can engage in reasoned choice and reasoned agency. And that's where the media lab becomes important because it allows us to, in my mind, create ways of not only creating new knowledge, but it also creates ways of dissemination the knowledge that is created. So it allows us to create ways that people can easily understand the essence of the choices that they face. And we create ways of disseminating and showing what it means for those choices that are made. Mm -hmm. So when I do that, then I align the public and the private good or the public and the private benefit. I ensure that in acting in my private interest, I also am acting in the collective interest of my community or the public. Mm -hmm. So when I think of why this project is there, when Denise approached me from as early as 2015, 2016 to say, come and explore working with us. I was just finishing up some work in Appalachia where the war on poverty in 2014, the US Congress declared that the war on poverty had failed after 50 years. Mm. 1964, they declared that the people who were the target of the war on poverty were actually in an absolute and relative sense further behind now than when they the, the mainstream than they were in 1964. Mm-hmm. And they also declared that in many ways, the Civil Rights Amendment, which was passed in the same 1964, was also showing a lot of failures. You know, so being the problem solver that I try to be, being concerned with the moral consequences of how economic resources affect everyday living and social living. And having worked in Honduras on this issue, having worked in New Orleans, having worked in Appalachia, coming back from Jamaica, being the head of the economy, I felt that Baltimore represented such an incredible opportunity to explore these things for basically two reasons. One, I can't ever do in a place, so I need to make sure that there are folks there who are already focused to be committed to doing. So when I met Denise Johnson, I did my due diligence and I realized that Baltimore was filled with people who are deeply committed not to get away, right, but to stand their ground and fight for Baltimore's future. Mm -hmm. That's the greatest asset one could ever have. Mm -hmm. People who are going to own the responsibility of self-development. You know, so I saw that there. And two, I saw also that Baltimore was a treasure trove of latent assets, especially cultural assets, that if awakened and clustered and synergized and synthesized, could represent an extraordinary new paradigm of community development, not only in Baltimore, but across all the cities of America that were dealing with 
um, strife, you know, Minneapolis and Atlanta and everywhere else, you know, and it could serve as a model worldwide. And we're now seeing that the USAID and MIT are now partnering, looking at the work, this work that we're doing here, the same framework as a new innovative practice for development across America and worldwide. So we think it's a really good opportunity for us to represent a demonstration effect of how if we strengthen people's rights to own their circumstance and we make sure that they have a way of processing the information that what the Media Lab does and are organized effectively, how they can demonstrate that when they are charged with the responsibility and have the capacity and are empowered to exercise those responsibilities, those are the most fundamental assets in development. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'm here and that's why I'm excited about the work that I'm doing here in Baltimore. The Free to Be More podcast is a product of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Hours at the Central Library have now been extended. Visit the library Monday through Thursday, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m., Friday and Saturday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. And all three of you have gathered together to work on the West Baltimore Reimagining and Redevelopment Project. Denise, I will let you sort of explain what this project is and what the genesis of it is. How did this come together? Well, um, engaging the community around the uh, Highway uh, to Nowhere story, that's when I learned the power of story. Uh, I never thought that uh, your story could be powerful. I never thought that people would want to hear your story. So we we were invited to different places to talk about the work that we were doing, the cultural organizing work that uh, we were doing in a lot of different places in the country and uh, met Flooney. And so, so I'm sorry. So out of that engagement, we developed a, a question. And that question was, can art and culture become tools for revitalization? And as we were doing the work, we were testing that out. And by testing it out, we were listening to the folks that were engaged around the space of the highway nowhere, hearing their stories and creating arts and getting connected and doing bigger things that attracted a whole lot of folks to the highway to nowhere as a national festival. But the learning happened on both sides. One, what became important to me at that particular time was the idea and the listening of those that have power disclaiming what we were doing, disclaiming West Baltimore. And I'm an optimistic person. So at that time, I didn't believe folks saying nobody cares about West Baltimore, but trying to do this work, we realized that it was true. But then the opposite also occurred in terms of going places where people wanted to hear the story and people wanted to celebrate us and people wanting to support us. And then when I I met Flooney, that's what I call him now, Dr. Hutchinson. Then when I (laughs) met Flooney and would start to have conversations with him, he would say things that I had never heard before. Mm -hmm. And I'm a very curious person. My life has been about exploration, different jobs, studying a lot of different topics, just trying to understand myself, my place in the world, and in other things. And he would say such interesting things that I, every time I would see him at a conference or, or at a gathering, I wanted to hear more of what he was saying. And then going back 
to the theory that we develop can art and culture be a tool for revitalization and then looking at the art that was created during the culture works work looking at what artists created it caused me to ask the question why is it that artists don't have more because they can create and how do you build this into something where it becomes an economic engine. And then meeting uh, Flooney as an economist and hearing him say the things that he said was the genesis of him deciding after checking us out to work with us. We, we had a public meeting, our first public meeting about this, and we invited him and, and Dr. Harris to the discussion. And it was stated to the public that they were here to assess our ability to be able to do a project such as what we're doing, reimagining West Baltimore culture and economic development. And I'll just say out loud that evidently we proved ourselves, if you don't mind, Flooney. Uh, no, I don't so, mind. It's accurate. Okay. And so for me is, while West Baltimore has, uh, according to statistics, the worst uh pieces of everything in terms of crime, in terms of abandonment, in terms of uh, low wages, poor health, those kinds of things. But at the same time as an organizer connected to the people and living in place, that's not all that I see. And being able to to work with uh, uh, Flooney and Dr. Harris and other mentors on the project, looking through their lens And even working with Lee, who is central to understanding culture, is the optimism Mm -hmm. that I carry with the work because we're talking about another lens. We're not talking about a deficit lens and we're not talking about the whole of the community being deficit. And then the West Baltimore itself has this rich history. And I'm a product of that rich cultural history. And that's the reason why I'm able to do the work that I do and have the knowledge that I have and and have this uh, cultural sense about me because it was in place. And aspects of it is still in place, but it is overwritten with a whole lot of other things. For example, I'll never forget, I'll say this and I'll move on. In 2015, when the Baltimore uprising occurred, a group of academic people uh, developed the black paper and uh, they sent the black paper out to quote people on the ground doing the work and stated something like they don't want credit for the work, but they wanted to do something. And so they hoped that what they did would be useful to us. So I read the information. It was all deficit based. West Baltimore, Everything was negative and I was offended. Mm-hmm. I was totally offended because it didn't mention anything historically about the place, culturally about the place. And then my family, you know, is in this place. So it's quite insulting not to have any historical or cultural pieces, but just negative data and variables about the place, which even when we were um, planning the national festival, it was the same kind of thing. People saying we didn't know what we were doing. People saying that if you have it in East Baltimore, we will own it and we will fund it. Uh, has city officials telling us you need to stop what you're doing. It's not good. You know, hearing all those things, 
was surprising to me, but they were also motivating for me because there's always more than one side of a thing. You know, a thing is never just one. It's it's always something else going on. So being able to take that original question about acetizing uh, culture and uh, place is uh, the work of reimagining West Baltimore. How do we take its history? How do we take its swag? How do we take its presence? Because Things are always going on in West Baltimore. Last Saturday, we had opera on the avenue Uh honoring Ann Wiggins Brown, who was an opera singer uh, playing, uh, was it Porgy? Is Porgy the woman? Yes. It was Taylor for her. (laughs) And um, so we we celebrated Ann Wiggins, and then we had, you know, an exhibit in the library, and we had Black folks singing opera and, I mean, all of those kinds of wonderful things are always happening. And to be able to co-create those kinds of things. And another piece of the cultural organizing work for me included being able to add a cultural perspective and a cultural language in the philosophical books, in journals, in academic journals, because it is so important For me, in terms of how do you talk about people? How do you take the wonderful things of human beings and make them less than wonderful? Mm -hmm. And the fact that we can co-create together, my proven track record that you can create something new. And Flooney mentioned different ways of knowing. And I think that's a big piece of the work is how community can represent its way of knowing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I want to go to Flooney next because there are a lot of economic challenges in West Baltimore, but there's also a rich cultural history. So as The Economist, how do you look at this as an engine to revitalize the community? It's a great question. I actually, we are always concerned with how do we organize economic resources to achieve some end that we seek. I want to combine your question with the question about the creation of the West Baltimore Reimagining Redevelopment Culture and Economics Project Mm -hmm. and Council. Everything that Denise just said is wonderful and great. But Professor Harris, who she mentioned, Professor Dollars, who is a professor at Stanford, Emitra's professor of economics at Stanford, I remember when he and I were combining to, we were asked to reimagine and recover the Jamaican economy. I remember him him saying to someone once, between Flooney and I, our 70 years of experience is Mm. unimpressed with talk. So everything that Denny said, if it was just talk, we would never invest any time in it because we have heard talk all the time. As economists, we are concerned with people's willingness to sacrifice for the things that they're talking about. You know, if they can't pay with money, can they pay with the commitment of their time and their resources? So our first meeting in Baltimore, November 2019, almost three years to the date. Denny's put out an open call saying, come and hear these two international economists. We have heard talk before from everybody. Probably they're just going to be another set of talk. Let's hear them. And we went there and 35 
persons from across West Baltimore who are stakeholders who care about West Baltimore showed up at the Arch Club to come and engage us and listen to us. So Prof. Harris and I said, that is incredible, you know, that people would come and so care about their community. So the next day, he and I decided to walk and drive around Pennsylvania Avenue, up and down, up and down, to try and look and see what this is all about. Mm-hmm. And we made notes of it, about its incredible opportunities and things. So we decided to test their commitment. Mm-hmm. Because remember now you're asking, what are the assets? Well, assets are also about loyalty and commitment and willingness to sacrifice, or what we call economics, grit. You know, you got to have grit to move a project forward. So we decided to have a second meeting just to see how serious these folks are. <laughs> we had a second meeting December 31st, New Year's Eve in Baltimore. Hmm. Right? Battle <laughs> test commitment. <laughs> and people showed up in numbers. And we said, okay, they are really, really committed and serious about understanding how they can move forward. You know, and so once we saw that people were going to at least match our commitment or our sacrifice, and I also have a responsibility to my institution. I I, I have an endowed amount of funds and my charge is to support student learning. So I basically am investing in selfishly can my students come into this environment and learn some things that they could never learn anywhere else? Like the human commitment to, to, to their agency, how that agency allows them to move beyond the deficit model that Denise is talking about and mm-hmm. to start imagining rebuilding their community on its assets, how to awaken its assets. They got to understand that I have a long track record in doing this and my students have gone on to Oxford and they've gone on to Yale and to Princeton and to Harvard and to the top jobs around. So I know that when I bring eager, hungry students, they got to be in a place where people are working just as hard to discover and mobilize their talent to achieve their greatness. It's all about everybody going after their greatness. So when we did our due diligence, I wrote to them in March 2020 and said, my due diligence is complete. I am committed. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's how the West Baltimore Reimagine and Project basically got launched because what we had was politicians. We had community activists. We had community mobilizers. We had business persons. We had intellectuals like Lee. We had all these other people. All of those people came together with even their disparate interests under a simple issue. We understand how we, when working cooperatively, we can actually further the goals of our development mm-hmm. that, than, than it would be of, with us working independently or competitively, mm-hmm. you know. And so we got together people who came together under this council of which Lee and Denise are important parts of to say, we are going to take charge of our development. And why I say this council is important is because my work and what I do, my economic empowerment and global learning project reports to the council. Mm-hmm. The council instructs us. 
as outsiders, we don't get to have any definitive or executive say about what happens in West Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Everything is done by, we have to depend on the Lees and the Denny's who sit on the council to approve of what we want to do. So mm-hmm. even with all my experience, I still have to go through the approving lens of Lee and Denny's. And that's what makes this project unique because basically, if in going through them, I don't think that's just creating value for my students, I'm out. Mm-hmm. And as I tell you, we're three years into it, you know, <laughs> and my students are doing just great, <laughs> you know, because of the learning that they're experiencing from people who are deeply committed to agency, to the exercise of agency, to the exercise of voice, to the exercise of development, and to do it in a way that is morally right and distributively right and ethical and equitable while wealth creating cultural wealth, economic wealth, all those kind of things. So essentially, when I look at this, I see where the biggest asset, which is a highly mobilized community that is deeply committed to sacrificing for what it wants, those are the assets that you need to make a community reimagine itself and Mm -hmm. live out its optimism. And it's a basic rule. Those who are optimistic are the ones who are most likely to achieve its ends. And so because of this optimism and because of this willingness to sacrifice to further this optimism, we thought that all the foundational assets necessary to turn and to move forward with purpose and intentionality were there. And that is the basis of my commitment into this process. Get connected at the Pratt. Outdoor Wi-Fi is now available at more than a dozen Pratt locations. Need internet at home? Check out a Chromebook and hotspot right from your local library, just like a book. More details at prattlibrary.org. I've heard each of you talk about the power of art and the power of using your story. Lee, can you tell me a little bit about how the IRC and the Media Lab is really helping process some of the information that's coming out through this project? Yes, I'm happy to. It's been terrific to be engaged since the beginning in trying to imagine ourselves what this will look like. But we are really well down the road now of building uh, what at this point is a virtual sculpture. So that's interesting, right? It's, uh-huh. it, it exists as a digital 3D model that you can see in you know virtual reality or you can just project on, on the side of a building. You know, we would love to have it built someday for real. But right now, this sculpture... Uh, It's kind of old school in that even though it looks in a way like a big abstract sculpture, we hope it looks very inspirational and dynamic, but each of the pieces of it means something very specific. So all the things that Flooney and Denise and my other colleagues talk about, these important theories that are really both radical and profound, I think, are all represented with certain forms in this sculpture. And the way those forms interact with each other tells a story about how these concepts interact. So just to be concrete about it, you've got basically a big fountain that's in a, uh, like any fountain, it's got a, a sort of pool around it. And 
there's three elements, basically. There's actually four, but I'm going to talk about three. One are these kind of cubes that are start under the water, and then they sort of rise up and begin to coalesce and, and link with each other and sort of create a spiraling tower of interlocked cubes. And the cubes are sort of transparent and skeletal and dynamic. And then there's a spiral that looks almost kind of like a a mesh, like a network that goes around them. And then there's these little colored objects, balls and donut shapes and other things that rise and flow through the sculpture. And they're animated. And there's also water that blows up the sculpture. Okay, now I'm going to talk about a fourth thing. And comes out these horns that are reminiscent of musical horns. Um, and these little balls that are floating up go inside the horn, the horns. And it's a, it's like a, the whole thing is like a dynamic, organic machine. Well, these cubes refer, you know, when they're under the water, they refer to history, positive aspects of history, foundational aspects, but also, you know, some challenging aspects of history. And they come up out of the water and they interlock with each other and they begin to represent social capital. They begin to represent new projects that are possible. And wrapping around those is this mesh, this spiral that I described. And that's, that's this idea of, of, of human communication, of networks, social networks, and the way they lead to uh, trust capital, what Flooney calls trust capital. It took my students, I have many students working on this, and I a long time to wrap our head around these concepts. But um, to me, they're they're just they're just wonderful. I mean, Flooney's idea that you use cultural assets to build trust capital and everything else kind of flows from that is, I think, brilliant. And then these animated things that I describe, these balls and other shapes, colored, multicolored things that float up through, those are kind of cultural activity they represent because they're beautiful and they're just dancing in the space, but they also represent spirit and they also represent the flow of ideas as they get pulled in and out of communication networks. And so we hope our aspiration is that people can look at this uh, sculpture and first of all, just enjoy it as a wonderful, delicious fountain of activity. But they can also, you know, I, I keep, I have this image in my, in my brain. I've told Denise and Flooney this before, that there's a mom or there's a school teacher and there's a young person with them. And they're saying, ah, you like this, this sculpture. It's beautiful, isn't it? We're trying very hard to make it beautiful. These different things mean something. This is what this means. You know, this is this, this other piece. This is what this means. This is how these things interact. So that that young person, could walk by this sculpture or see this sculpture represented in some way. Maybe they look at it on the internet or they see it projected on the side of a big building and go, you know, that's, that's pretty, but it's not just beautiful. It has deep meaning for my community. I understand what that is saying about our potential and how we can use it to move forward, how we can use our assets to get the things that we want to have happen to happen. Mm -hmm. Denise, I wanted to ask you, it feels like this project is very grassroots. It's run by a council 
that is galvanized by so much community support. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think there are like government forces or government agencies that are involved in it. Why is it so important that this really comes from the people and by the people that live in that community? And what are some of the outcomes you're hoping that this project achieves? Uh, what you said is correct. We do have Senator Hayes who represents the, the 40th, 40th district on the council. Uh-huh. So for me, it's important to acknowledge that the community has a lot of assets, people that are educated, people that are experienced, people who have uh, various talents, people that are running organization, people that are doing art. There are folks in West Baltimore that are doing so many incredible things. And they are leaders and they have always been leaders. And the point for me was to show the leadership in West Baltimore and show that the leadership has these uh, talents and the ability to move something forward as opposed to government engaging the community and government moving something forward. An opportunity to show that we can do this also, that we're skilled, that we're knowledgeable that we can tap into resources to support us in uh, making change that we want in our community. That's the whole point of putting together the Leadership Council. Mm-hmm. Lenny, what is the timeline for the project? Megan, your question is brilliant because I'm the economist and time is money and time is a resource and all of that kind of stuff. When you go to college, Lee and everyone knows that your biggest constraint, once you have already paid your tuition, it's not your money, it's about your time. Your time to attend your classes, your time to get your projects done on time, your time to do your exam in a timely way. The same thing holds here. October 1, 2023, the state legislature is demanding that the West North Authority, which is a legislative body, present to the governor and to the legislator, a plan for the revitalization of the West North area of West Baltimore and the 250 people. So we have a constraint. Mm-hmm. So we are interested in what we call constraint maximization. The constraint, how do we maximize everything we have heard here? So we have the Black Art and Entertainment District, which has been launched. Mm-hmm. We have the, the city investment impact zone which has been launched we have the baltimore community and what is it denise baltimore assisting and and, and advancing neighbors we have all of those things which are running in the same corridor and in the middle of it now we are introducing this incredibly revolutionary innovative way of understanding development how to aspire a community why is that important because once you then show that you can be a value creator in this space, look at what has happened. We now have the, the planning authority of the city want to hear the work and the presentation. We have the West North Authority from government, want, from legislature want to hear the presentation. We are, you know, we have, we have spoken to the, the city person charge of community development. You know, we're probably hopefully going to speak with the city council and mm-hmm. with the developers association and all of the people around now who would be separate and apart and would not come to engage want to engage because not only do we have organization through the community organizer, demonstration through the IRC, but we also 
have voice so that the civic market and our ability to represent ourselves or the West Baltimore's ability to represent themselves works the same like an economic market, where if you don't like something, you don't buy it. Well, they see and they know the power and they know what they like. And so they all want to come in and be a part of it and buy. So Mm -hmm. essentially, to answer your question, the timeline, this thing is so galvanizing of people's imagination mm-hmm. of a new kind of development. Denise can tell you at the meetings, they say, can you speak about it? Because we've never heard about culture and economic development. We have mm-hmm. never had culture at the center of economic development. We've only ever heard about mixed, you know, mixed living buildings and, mm-hmm. and, and housing development. But we have never heard something that now is at the centrality of it that gives it meaning and purpose and mm-hmm. joy and valuableness. And so all of a sudden, the work that this organization is doing is now inspiring a new way to understand development. And that's what MIT latched on to. That's what USA now wants to imagine driving development around the world. People-centered development where people own, understand their responsibilities, and then they partner with government, partner with private sector, Part of everything, but with people having the voice and the power to ensure that they are at the table and they are not just residual in other people's imagination of their space. I can hear the passion in all of your voices so much about how this is such a revolutionary, different way of approaching the revitalization of a community. And Lee, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about, you know, what is your hopes and dreams, you know, 10, 20 years down the line for the cultural organizations in West Baltimore? What do you hope West Baltimore looks like after this project that could have such an amazing change in the community? Well, you know, there's no question in my mind that when Denise and Flooney, I've worked with Denise for quite some time, but but I just met Flooney three years ago. Um, you know, when I heard them talking about making culture the basis of economic development, I knew that I was in the right place and that I wanted to be involved. And so what that means for what West Baltimore and other places could look like in the future is actually, I think, very profound. I think it's a very big change from what we do now. I'll just be specific about that. You know, we we think very technologically, very institutionally as a society. We think money, technology, gadgets, pills, institutions are going to solve our problems. And certainly we've gotten a lot of mileage out of those things. But we're at a point now where it's obvious that culture itself, the scripts that we all run by, the narratives that hold us together, our shared values, the way they emerge and the way they're articulated and the way they're seen and appreciated by different people. Those are the things that at the end of the day, I don't care if you're talking about economic development or climate change or just whether people will get a vaccine or wear a mask, right? We now know that cultural factors will derail the most well-funded technological advancements 
you know, the, the, the science on climate change has been solid for a long time. We're just gilding the lily on that right now because we don't know how to deal with, with cultural issues. Well, if Flooney and Denise and Arch Social and the IRC and all of the other leaders involved in this can make clear, you know, certainly we want to represent these things with the arts constantly. But if we can make clear that culture itself is the foundation that it's when people come together and build relationships and unite around values that they have worked out together using cultural means. And then those values are things that they hold close to their hearts and live by and commit to and spend their energy on, as Flooney was saying. That is a very different way of doing business, so to speak, than we have in at least a century or two in the main anyway. It's, it's kind of ancient actually is the <laughs> is the strange thing about it right i mean it's really this is how we are ironically one of the first cultures to not understand the importance of culture virtually every other civilization at every other time it's been job number 1 we just thought we could get a lot more mileage out of these other uh, means that i was describing but i think if if we can show that this can work in baltimore that culture is the center of it in Baltimore. I think it will change Baltimore. I think it will change many, many places that are willing to look at this. Mm-hmm. And Denise, how can people find out more about this project? Uh, we're getting ready to uh, put it more online so that we are in the process of doing a public presentation on December the 2nd to uh-huh. show what has taken place uh, over the last three years. And we'll be putting something online and links and things like that so that the public can uh, review it, make comments on it, and become a part of it. So we're getting there with that piece. Uh-huh. Well, I'm so excited to see where this project goes. I want to thank each of the three of you for your time and for your work on this. It could be truly transformational, and I think it's great for the city and it's great for the world to become a worldwide model. So thank all of you for your time, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. One Book Baltimore is back at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. We're celebrating the fifth anniversary of this successful program, bringing Baltimore City seventh and eighth graders, their families, and the community together around one book. This year's selection, Furia by Shamile Saeed Mendez. Pick up your copy at any Pratt Library today. More information at prattlibrary.org. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow the Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another Free to Be More conversation. Thanks for listening.